Well, hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's first of the month interview, we'll talk with Caleb Smith about the parts of the Bible that got the most attention in different parts of the church's history. Not only will we become history buffs, but we'll gain a ton of insights into why we focus on certain portions of the Bible in the first place. So you won't want to miss it. So I'm stoked about this episode. Back in uh, the very first episode of The Rebind, I made my big pitch for why we need a podcast like this in the first place. Um, you know, Are there parts of the Bible that are neglected? Uh, what happens when we live off of 0.001% of the scriptures when the scriptures tell us we need all of them? Uh, what's the benefit of living the Christian life on 100%? And for part of that first episode, I kind of pointed to all of history as evidence. If we, if we can look back and clearly see how Christians before us have given more attention to one part of the Bible than another, better or worse, and it's safe to say that we're doing the same thing right now without realizing it, and it's always good to check our blind spots. But I've been thinking since then, like, wouldn't it be awesome if instead of just pointing to history as proof that we need a podcast like this, what if we could actually have someone who really knows something about church history walk us through how this has happened in the past 2,000 years? Like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could learn from the mistakes and victories of how Christians in the past have used the Bible, maybe appreciate the parts that were precious to them, but not us, see why they highlighted certain parts? You get the idea. And I'm stoked for today because we have found that someone. I've asked my friend Caleb Smith to have a chat with me today. Now, Caleb Smith has, has studied church history in his theology degree from Moody, Moody Bible Institute and in his master's degree in systematic theology, which had an emphasis on historical theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Now, another really awesome thing that Caleb does, he's got a YouTube channel. You can just search his name, Caleb Smith, and he gives these summaries for more complicated books on theology and history and stuff like that and sort of just gives the rundown of what these books are saying. So search his name, Caleb Smith. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Caleb Smiths out there, so you might run into a youth pastor or two, but that is, he is not the youth pastor guy. Okay, so search his name in YouTube and you should be able to find him up there. So anyway, Caleb, thanks so much for doing this. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, how have you been doing in all this corona craziness? <laughs> yeah, we're, so we're out in Arizona where things are just kind of starting to, to open up again. So uh, we got some good time hiking with friends the other day. It was like coming out of you know, out of a out of a crazy dungeon for a bunch of months. We were all out <laughs> together, out laughing, yeah. out in nature. So uh, wow. it's but it's been good, yeah. The audacity, that's crazy. All right, well, it seems like there's just so much that we could learn from church history, and uh, I'm happy to just kind of dive right in. You know, the way that we use the Bible, why we focus on certain parts. Why don't we just start at the beginning, uh, right after Jesus rose from the dead and the apostles spread the mission of the church? What did they focus on in that time period, that like very first early church? What do we learn from that? Yeah, so uh, the early church time period, different historians break it up different ways. Some people say the early church ends, ends with the uh, deposition of the final Roman emperor in 476. Some say it ends with 
John of Damascus's systematic theology in 787. But those first 500 years or so are considered the early church. And, okay. and in those 500 or so years, there is a certain attention paid to certain parts of the canon and other parts of the canon are really neglected. And I think there is a bit of a logic behind which books of the Bible were really given close scrutiny and which books of the Bible were kind of neglected. And, and the logic is they had a certain vision of what they thought reading the Bible was intended for. The ultimate upshot of, of interacting with scripture for them was spiritual transcendence, was um, about some type of personal existential encounter with the divine. And because that was the goal, that's what they were after, that caused them to focus on some parts of scripture and leave others behind. Um, for example, the book of James was actually, there, there wasn't a single commentary written on the book of James. It was referenced, obviously people read the book of James, but it, if your goal going into reading the Bible is some type of uh, Mount of Transfiguration type moment, the book of James might not be the easiest way to get there. And so there weren't many commentaries written on it. Wow. How opposite right, to today. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's actually uh, some factoids, I guess, some questions I have that we can maybe talk back and forth and, and maybe the uh, audience can think about, you know, how would you answer these questions? Or maybe they can guess at, at what they think the answers to these questions are that just really like drive home this point of the intention of reading the Bible. Yeah, fire away. Um, so, so one of the questions is, which of the Gospels do you think the early church used the most? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to take a stab at it. Uh, would it be John if it's transcendence thing? Yeah, yeah. So given given the idea that the the purpose is spiritual transcendence, John is uh, there are, and we we know this by just based on how many copies of each of the texts that we have. Uh, okay. For every copy of the Gospel of Mark, there are over eleven copies of the Gospel of John. Wow. So. John is read more than 11 times more frequently. Now, you know, archaeology isn't a, an exact science. Maybe there were more copies of the Gospel of Mark that have just been lost to history. But in general, it's a good record just showing how much more prevalent it was. And there's actually some funny uh, codices where it goes from John to Acts. So instead of reading Luke Acts, mm -hmm. they so want the spiritual transcendence thing that they'll, they'll read John and then move to Acts instead of reading the two books <laughs> written by Luke in a row. And... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and so it's an example of maybe prioritizing one part of the canon to to the neglect of the other gospels because of gotcha. what they were emphasizing. So you've uh, been you've been say, using the word canon. Uh, I might be thinking of here of like a ship artillery thing with a cannonball coming out. Could you just explain what that term means? Yeah. So yeah, just basically, what are the books in the Bible? So for a, a Protestant okay. canon, we have the sixty six books of the New Testament. Um, okay. There's some debate between Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox about what is in the Old Testament, but uh, the New Testament, there, there's pretty much agreement on the 27 books of the canon. And so the, and so there actually, an, another point um, that I didn't have written down, but it kind of uh, re reifies what I'm talking about here, yeah. is there, there was one book of the Bible, one book of the New Testament that was kind of questioned on whether it should be in the canon or not. And, um, one of the most, most, a few of them were questioned, but one of the most questions was the book of Revelation. Understandably, it's a little weird. And the, one of the reasons that some of the Eastern church fathers questioned whether the book of Revelation should be in the canon 
was because they thought it was too earthy. It ends with heaven coming to earth and a glorification wow. of the earth. And so from my perspective, no the book of Revelation seems very dreamlike and crazy. It's transcendent. Yeah. It's out there. But for some Eastern church fathers, it was actually too earthy. It wasn't emphasizing transcendence enough. And that was a reason to question. Wow. There were other questions, but that was one of yeah. the reasons. That's crazy. You know, to think about, I feel like a lot of people bash on church history and say like, oh, well, the only reason these books got in was because, you know, these people wanted it and their particular interests and, you know, the history is told by the winners and all that. But like to think about the struggles that people had back then with certain books as like some of their own biases coming through even more than the ones that they recognized were authoritative. That's, that's crazy. I, I never, I never even realized that it was that earthliness considering how much they wanted that transcendence, man. Yeah. No, if, if, uh, if, history is just written by the winners. And if, if early church was just all politics, then, um, you know, well, first of all, the canon would look at it a lot different, but also, um, there, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of doctrine and a lot of church practices that wouldn't have won out because it was actually the minority mm -hmm. position, um, of yeah. the faithful Christians kind of holding on to that minority position for a number of years. And it ended up becoming orthodoxy, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's not always the, it's not always just politics that explains how the early church operated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's crazy. So, so if the early church, like, didn't have as much of the best-selling, you know, Bible study curriculum on James, like, why do you think they wanted that spiritual transcendence so much? Yeah. So, uh, and it, it is a good, uh, it is a good virtue or a good ideal to have to want to experience God directly and be changed by that. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it can be so overemphasized that it causes a, a skewed reading of all of scripture, but the, the desire itself isn't, isn't bad. I think the reason some historians might say that was such a big emphasis for them was, was just simply the death rate and being a persecuted mm -hmm. minority, at least until Constantine. Um, you know, you don't have a ton of financial prospects. If you're a Christian in the year yeah. 200, it's not like you can bet that if you just invest wisely and live below your means, you'll be able to get a retirement home. Um, life yeah. is life is going to be hard. And, and the very intense physical pressures that the early church felt might have been one of the things that uh, caused them to lean into this value of wanting to experience the transcendent because the imminent was just so brutal. Yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense. Even just thinking about, you know, the the different parts of the Bible that people focused on, it doesn't always have to be like a, you know, bad guy kind of motivation, looking for the wrong reasons. Like you're saying, it's a it's a good value to want to have that transcendent relationship with the Lord, um, and sometimes that can skew the parts we focus on. But to have some have a little empathy and sympathy at least for what they were going through, that can explain a lot and makes a lot of sense why we might want to focus on those books. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a, here's another factoid for the listeners that might be interesting to kind of hammer home this point of, of the fact that the early church emphasized transcendence so much. Uh, yeah. so the, the question is there was one book of the Bible that over 70% of the quote unquote kind of big commentators, people like Augustine and Chrysostom and, um, yeah. the bigger, more known pastors and theologians, over 70% of these guys wrote a commentary on this book of the Bible. And 
Today, less than 10% of biblical scholars write a commentary on this book of the Bible. Oh, man. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm going I'm to guess from the standpoint of what people don't want to write about. I'm going to say Song of Songs. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, man. that's right. And so, so seventy. If you're, if you just kind of pick a church father at random, there's a seven out of ten chance likelihood that they they wrote a verse by verse commentary or preached through Song of Songs. And today, uh, you know, there's a one in ten, ten chance that a, a scholar will. And the kind of like corollary fact on this is that uh, there was only about ten percent of church fathers who were commenting on the Book of Romans. Okay. But since since Martin Luther, that is now yeah. the most uh, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, the most commentaries and the most ink is spilled on the book of Romans by far. It's, it's, wow. uh, you know, eight out of 10, eight and a half out of 10. So, okay. So you're kind of making the, the older church people here sound like creepos. So why, why would 70% of them write on the song of songs? Is it just kind of our over hesitation with those kinds of, um, topics or was there a reason they liked to talk about it? Yeah. So they're, there, uh, not only was there kind of uh, value in reading scripture, trying to experience the transcendent, but they also did have a hermeneutic, which just means kind of a principle of interpreting uh, texts. They, they had a principle for interpreting scripture that took uh, very physical symbols, and they were very quick to see spiritual realities in those physical symbols. And there's debate among scholars on how much of a spiritual hermeneutic should you have and whether that's good or not. But whether that's good or not, the fact is the early church really emphasized this, this spiritual hermeneutic. And so when they read the Song of Songs, they might talk about how that um, represents good, healthy relationship between a husband and a wife. But most of the time, they saw this as the ideal spiritual encounter between the Christian and God. And again, you know, different scholars admit we can go back and forth on whether that is a good interpretation. But the fact that they all saw Song of Solomon as uh, the dance that is supposed to happen between the believer's soul and God, given, uh, you know, also with their their supreme value of, of a transcendent experience, made this just the most important book for them by far, without even a question. And uh and it was a kind of a habit, especially in Eastern Church Fathers, to call it the Holy of Holies. And the rest mm-hmm. of the the rest of the canon is kind of the holy place, but Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. That's where we we really see what uh, it looks like to have a spiritual experience with God. Wow, man! Everything you're saying is so interesting. At the same time, I'm thinking about like <laughs> this is so different from like what American would call this Song of Songs, the Holy of Holies. That's so enlightening um, and to, to understand why they do it. So do you have any fit more factoids about uh, the early church period, those first 500 years after Christ? Yeah. So I guess here's a, here's a final one is uh, so St. Augustine, he's probably the most, and I say Augustine, not Augustine, um, different viewers might um, agree to never agree. Yes. No one can agree. But so uh, Augustine, he, uh, he was writing and he was trying to defend a, an Orthodox theology of, the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he's one person. And Augustine wanted to, you know, really prove this from scripture. So he he started writing a commentary on a book of the Bible that would really prove this, this orthodox teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And uh, I guess the factoid is, or the question is, what book of the Bible do we think 
Augustine turned to to prove this orthodox Christology? Hmm. I can't lose my winning streak here. I got. Yeah, you're two for two. Very impressive. (laughs) I I think I just got lucky. Um, Well, would it be Song of Songs if that was such a big book for them? Well, he he did talk about Song of Songs a lot, but in this case, it's actually the Psalms. He he read the Psalms as uh, as not just songs to sing for us in uh, kind of expressing our emotional state. But there are also songs sung by the true David, by the true descendant of David, and lead us to an appropriate Christology. And so, again, whether different modern scholars agree that Augustine is reading the Psalms correctly or not, it's, it just marks the very different way that, that modern Christians interact with the Psalms than how Augustine did. We might view the Psalms as um, helpful emotional salve for us if we're going through a hard time. And, and Augustine would view them as um, songs sung from the lips of Christ. These are songs not primarily sung by us, but they're songs primarily sung by the Messiah. And if we read them that way, not coming out of our heart, but coming out of his heart, they will lead us to an orthodox theology. And uh, yeah, that's, that's maybe just an interesting early yeah. church approach to the psalm, seeing them as primarily coming from the Messiah that uh, is different than how we interact with the Bible today. Yeah. So thinking about that early church period as a whole, it seems like one of the big insights from what you're saying about maybe checking the ways that we focus on one part or another of the Bible is to ask, like, what is our goal in reading the Bible? You know, it sounds like such a basic question, such a assumed fact that everybody agrees on, but whether it's the different circumstances in our life or, you know, the different... Um, uh, cultures that we're living in or whatever it is, we might have a, a different focus of what we're trying to get out of the Bible that's leading us to look at one part or the other. And maybe if we look at those parts that aren't as natural to us, we might grow and expand what we do try to get when we come to the Bible and, and have more of a well-rounded vision for life and what it equips us with. So why right. don't we fast forward a little bit to... Uh, the medieval church, like the period after those 500 years. Um, why don't you tell us about what they focused on in that time period and what we learned from that? Yeah, yeah. So um, the next kind of general chunk of church history, medieval church from about 500 to about 1600. And again, different historians break it up differently. But the world in the medieval period really did look different and the church began to look different. And one big thing that happened in the church in this medieval period is the definitive split between East and West. And the Eastern church began to take on a certain flavor and a certain way of interacting with scripture and a certain set of emphases that were different than the West. And in the East, what they really started focusing on was the Old Testament. They really took up Old Testament theology in a way that was um, not, not seen before in church history, and specifically parts of the Old Testament where there are pre-incarnations of Christ or theophanies, uh, scenes and stories where the angel of the Lord shows up or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, that story begins, those stories begin to take on a, a really important role in Eastern theology. And in Western theology in the medieval period, a little bit more of an emphasis begins to uh, be put on Paul's epistles. 
not quite to the level of emphasis that they have today, but there's a lot more um, exegetical attention paid paid to uh, Galatians and Ephesians and, and Colossians. And so one question we might want to ask as historians is what explains this shift? Is it just yeah. different cultures or or what actually happened that, that caused these two different churches to like just so zero in on different parts of the canon? Yeah. And the, the answer, I think, is might be uh, surprising to people who, who aren't right aware of history, but the answer is that around the year 700, a big... Uh, a big new player is on the scene in the West or uh, in the East, excuse me, which is Islam. And there's a big new player in the West, which is the churches really begin to interact with what we would call paganism. That's kind of a, a derogatory term in history books now, um, but, but non Romans. And so the church in the East starts interacting with a new form of a non-Christian neighbor and the church in the West starts interacting with a new form of the non-Christian neighbor. Before the fall of Rome, everyone was Roman and there was just debates about what type of Roman are you, a Christian Roman or a Jewish Roman or a pagan Roman. But now there's barbarians in Islam thrown into the mix. And as the church interacts with these new forms of non-Christian neighbors, that actually affects what parts of the Bible they begin to really emphasize. And so the Eastern church wants to demonstrate the Trinity and really prove that God is a Trinity, unlike the Monad of Islam. And so they try to find Christ in the Old Testament. And the Western church wants to have rules for society and rules for households and rules for life, unlike what they would call their barbarian neighbors. And so they start reading the epistles of Paul. Wow. I never even thought about it like that. So do you think that those same sorts of motivations are at play today, I guess? Like, can you think of an example of any sort of way where we might focus on a certain part of the scriptures because of the non-Christians around us? Yeah. So I, I think if if our non if the non-Christian we kind of assume we're interacting with is a secular atheist person who is happy to just live their their very physical life and they just believe that everything is physical and that's it, we might um, be gravi- we might gravitate towards parts of the canon that are a little bit more apologetic or able to give a little bit more um, of a robust defense or argumentative nature to defend the faith. And whereas if, if you're a Christian in the Middle East and, and your Islamic neighbors already agree there's a God, already agree there's souls, already agree there's an afterlife and a judgment, you might gravitate towards different parts of the canon that allow you to talk about the Trinity or the Incarnation, but um, kind of arguing for the truth of Christianity and arguing for our, our, the factual correctness is, mm-hmm. is an emphasis in America. It's something that we're kind of naturally drawn to. There's a lot of Bible studies. There's a lot of breakout sessions at seminars based on kind of how to defend the faith from the Bible. And um, that, that emphasis that we have that uh, we're driven to a certain part of the canon is, is kind of determined by the non-Christian neighbors that happen to be around us, which has happened to churches throughout church history. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I guess there could be there could be really good parts of that and, and maybe some dangerous parts of that as well. I mean, to, to think of the needs around us that, that, that they were thinking this way, even, you know, thousand, 2000 years ago of, of what does, what part of scripture does my non-Christian neighbor need to hear? I, that seems like a very legitimate and appropriate way of zeroing in on one part of scripture. I wonder if maybe too, from the flip side of that, you know, if we, 
took in just sort of all of it and, and learned the different ways that the different parts of scripture speak to the world. Maybe there are audiences that we're not thinking about that could be reached by the things that we look at. Maybe the, you know, maybe in America, the the Muslim neighbors that are around us, wherever they are, might not get as much attention because we're focused on all those other books. But uh, we'll have a more of a voice to be able to have a conversation with them if we, we take all of it in. So that's that's crazy. That's an incredible insight into the medieval church period. Any other uh, trivia facts for us from there? I want to see if I can keep my winning ratio higher than my losing. Yeah. So um, yeah, I like I love the way that you're putting that. Is there's there's an appropriate way to kind of zero in on certain parts of the Bible because it, it's good to to have the Bible speak to our non-Christian neighbors. But yeah, then maybe there is a uh, an unhealthy way to set to look at the world around you and then like reverse engineer to find those parts of the Bible that are, that are helpful. To, and uh, that's not, it's not really taking the text seriously. It's, it's kind of having an eye on, on your life and then reverse engineering how to read the Bible. And, and here's maybe an example of that from the reformers period. Um, there was one book of the Bible that went from hardly being commented on at all to in the early decades of the reformation, every single reformer commentated on it, except for John Calvin. But every other reformer wrote a book on on this book of the Bible, even though there hadn't been commentaries written on it for centuries. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't know if this is a trick question. I feel like it's supposed to be like Romans, but I want to I want to throw a curveball and say like, is it Job? Ooh. Well, so uh, it, I guess there's a bunch. There are a bunch of right answers. Actually, Romans and Job <laughs> both did get a lot more oh, okay. time than beforehand. <laughs> The most, okay. the biggest answer. So you get like a half point, I guess, for that. That's those are those are both correct. Um, but the 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 most standout one is the Book of Revelation, actually, um, because there was a lot of reformers who wanted to make the case that the Pope was the Antichrist, and so they reverse engineered and they had to they had to find verses in the Bible that that proved this thing they wanted to be true. Except for John Calvin, and many people um, would say it's because he he uh, he kind of saw through what the other reformers were doing, and he didn't <laughs> want to do that. He didn't write want to write yeah. a commentary that wasn't true to the text, just to fit the world around him. And uh, so, so I guess there's this is maybe an illustration of maybe a little bit of an inappropriate way to you already have your conclusion about what you want to say to the world around you, and then you kind of find your verse. You, you go back and you go, oh, there's, here's a verse about a beast and I'll, uh, yeah, yeah. and we'll all start writing about that. Yeah. That's really helpful. I would, I mean, as you've been explaining all this, it got me thinking like, what is that difference? You know, like, it seems like there were very legitimate reasons for the parts of the Bible that these people focused on. And I can see how that could be a good thing. I could see how that could like maybe be unhealthy and what makes the difference. And that, that term that you've been using reverse engineering sort of just kind of helped make it click for me of what that difference is. Like, is it coming out of what we're reading? Are we looking for what we already want to say to our neighbors, what we already want to walk away with from the Bible, and therefore picking the parts of the Bible that we're focusing on? That that makes a lot of sense to me. So you've already talked about uh, the Reformers a little bit. You've talked about John Calvin. Um, why don't we jump there now, thinking about after the medieval church when Martin Luther and others sort of rise on to the scenes, um, what did they focus on in that time period? And, and what do you think we learned from that? Yeah, so um, 
so so the modern church period, um, uh, there's there's a lot more fragmentation. So after the okay. after the Reformation, they we start with just uh, two types of Protestant, uh, more Reformed and more Lutheran, and that quickly becomes three with the Anglican, and quickly becomes four with the Congregationalists, and quickly becomes five with the Puritans, and uh, since then the church has. Uh, the Protestant churches have have continued to grow in different types of denominations, and um, so so this idea of kind of looking at different Christian groups and seeing what parts of the Bible they really emphasize uh, just becomes a lot more fragmented because there's so many more different little Christian groups, and you can zoom into all of them and say, oh wow, look at this group for some reason is really emphasizing Chronicles. That's interesting, and this group <laughs> over here is is talking about Genesis week after week after week. That's that's interesting, and so. Yeah. The, at this point, after the Reformation, this kind of project of seeing where parts of the canon are emphasized just becomes a minefield and uh, or a gold mine if you if you like that kind of thing. Um, sure. But I have a I have a few examples or factoids here of, of how since the Reformation, different Christian groups have really zoomed into different parts of the canon. And, yeah. Uh, so here, so like here's one example is is a question. Uh, for the listeners is in the African-American church, the African-American Baptist church, there are two books of the Bible that are preached on and referenced and used as devotional material far and away much more than the other 64 books of the canon. What Mm. what might those two books in the African-American church that are emphasized be? Okay. I've got, I've got a guess for one. Uh, is one Amos? Oh, Amos is three. It's like oh, a, it's okay. a far third place, but it is it is third. Well, okay, maybe a fourth a point then. <laughs> um, okay, I'll, I'll give I'll give one more guess. Um, um, okay, never mind. I've already lost. What's the answer? <laughs> it's uh, it's the books of Exodus and Jeremiah. Oh, of course. Okay, and uh, and. It, and so this might think might be a case of a specific religious tradition not sitting down and saying, okay, what are our theological values? How are we using scripture? And then kind of zoom in on a part of canon like the early church. And it's not so much uh, coming out of in an interaction with their non-Christian neighbors, like in the medieval church, but it's, it's talking about their own uh, religious experience, their own history, the things they've been through and saying, look, because of the lives we've led, because of the... Uh, the cultures that we've been put through, these are the parts of the canon that are just most dear to us and speak to us most specifically. And, uh, and yeah, Jeremiah and Exodus are, are preached and expounded in, in that religious tradition um, just more deeply and, and emotionally than they are in other parts of Protestantism. Is, is for Exodus in that case of the, the African-American history, um, I'm assuming it has to do with the the being liberated out of enslavement and into like a life with God, the the justice of God over the oppressors. Um, is that true? And and if that's the case, what about Jeremiah? How, how did that fit in? Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's exactly the role Exodus plays, and then maybe Jeremiah. And I, I'm not as specific um, this part of church history as as well read as I am in the others, but I from what I can sure. tell. Um, Jeremiah almost kind of plays the, the negative role of if Exodus is the positive vision of God liberating people and bringing them into relationship with him, Jeremiah is reminding us, but also God is just and will deal with oppressive nations and oppressive powers. 
And um, it's okay for us to be angry at injustice because this is a book of the Bible dedicated to many truths, but one of the truths being that God is angry at injustice. And so there's mm. kind of a rejoicing in Exodus and, and a kind of a remind, reminder that judgment is coming in, in Jeremiah. And wow. that's um, really valuable. seems like there'd be a, a lot to learn about and listen to for that one. That's uh, yeah, thought provoking. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a, uh, here's, I guess my last factoid is, is similarly, there's actually a um, kind of Baptist Christian denomination that has sprung up in Palestine of all places. And there is in the, the little bit of stats we have about Palestinian Christianity, uh, there is one book of the Bible that also gets noticeably much more airtime, many more commentaries and devotions are written about in Palestinian Christianity over the others. This one is probably yeah. the most, uh, if, 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 the, if, if these factoids are too hard to guess, this one is maybe, I don't know, maybe it's hard, maybe it's easy, we'll see. I, I don't know. I was I was just thinking, you know, as these questions have gone on, my confidence has, has dwindled. But um, let's see. Um, is it Esther? Oh no, that's interesting. I would I would like to see if there's any religious tradition where Esther is the big one. That would be really interesting to me. Um, that would That'd be awesome. That would be really cool. But it, it's actually First uh, Peter, which okay. which kind of makes sense. A book written to churches that are undergoing lots of social pressure and possibly sometimes physical pressure. But yeah. I, I guess this is just illustrating the same point um, that sometimes Christian groups will, will really zone in on some part of the canon, not because they are doing their theology first or not because they're um, trying to interact with their non-Christian neighbor first, but just because their life circumstances are so pressing in on them. And then there's some part of the canon that, that speaks to that truth so directly that it becomes it becomes more rich for them than it might other parts of the body. Hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think even just thinking about the the way that the scriptures unfold and their story from beginning to end, just seeing how the Bible does that within itself to see the prophets draw on the Exodus and see it in a fresh light in, in terms of the captivity that they experienced in Babylon and to see the apostles pick up on all the, the promises in scripture and and zero in on the way that they're they're coming to light and 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 being experienced in light of what Christ has just done, and, and I, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot of um, good reasons for doing that, for looking at the circumstances we're facing, and and looking at the word and thinking this isn't just a dead relic. This is speaking directly into the things that I'm experiencing, yeah. and that would be a, a good you know motivation for for wanting to look at certain parts to speak to that. I, you know, maybe there's that that two-sided coin of that even there too, like the the healthy side of doing that, of of wanting to look at the things that maybe more directly address what we're facing. But you know, maybe maybe also the unhealthy side of that reverse engineering, if we're just um, already starting with those ideas that the the pressure and circumstances around us form in us. And then choosing the parts of the Bible that, that are comfortable with that rather than challenging that. I don't know. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's that's super well put is, uh, yeah, so if we, there's the history hat, we can put our history hat on and just look at all these different traditions and groups and and see, uh, you know, oh, isn't that interesting? They focused on this part for this reason. But then we take the history hat off and we put on our like, okay, now in the real world though, in our lives, how... How is it that we can be faithful to all of scripture and put all of the pages of the Bible back together? 
And I think that these, um, these kind of lessons of just looking at what has influenced different groups throughout history, it, it allows us to maybe be a little more aware of what is influencing us. And maybe if we are uh, reading that, you know, 0.001 or uh, mm-hmm. part of the scripture that, that you talk about, um, we, can, we can be a little bit more aware of what those pressures are that are forcing us to be so narrowly focused on, on just a little bit of the Bible, not, uh, you know, not throwing off all of our influences. We, uh, yeah. we can't pretend that we're outside of time like God and, and totally un, you know, unaffected by influences. We are. But just being aware of them, I think, is really a benefit of studying history. It, it just makes us more aware of, of what those pressures are that are forcing us to look at some parts of the canon and, and neglecting the fullness of, of the biblical story. Yeah. Yeah, man, spoken like a true church historian. I think this is so enriching to have these different focuses and different studies of history and Bible and theology. Like, instead of separating those out and having completely separate podcasts for all of them to think about how they intersect, to think about what we learn from the different parts of scripture and our tendencies that zero in on one or another from history, man, I, I've been super enriched just hearing uh, the insights that you shared today from the different periods of history. And I, I think even just a little bit more self-aware of, of why it is that I might find an easier, um, a certain part of the Bible more easy to flip to in a morning Devo than another one, a little bit more comfortable. And maybe what's good about that, that I felt guilty about before, and maybe what I should be challenged by if I've become a little too comfortable with that. So, man, Caleb, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for your uh, your factoids mm-hmm. and uh, your fount of historical knowledge. And, uh, you know, I hope that this is an encouragement to all the listeners as they think about their own biases and their own I hope everyone's inspired to want to read more of the Bible and read the Bible more um, learn what we do from history. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This has been great. Um, yeah, if you have me again, you can uh, quiz me on original <laughs> languages knowledge and I'll go zero for 100. So. <laughs> okay, well, I'll be prepping the questions for revenge starting now. Very good. <laughs> All right, thanks, Caleb. Yeah, thanks for having me. See you.